All right, I'm just going to start reading this text. We're making our way into Mark chapter 5. We've read through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 as we go through the gospel of Mark in a series called Jesus is King. And now we're in chapter 5. This particular passage is 20 verses long, and it's a great account of the types of things that Jesus does in people's lives. And because it's such a a compelling story, I want to read the whole thing And then we'll start going through it chunk at a time uh, as I explain the text and we respond to it in worship. So if you have your Bibles or your devices open with me, starting in verse 1, Mark chapter 5, it says this. It says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And the man replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled, told it in the city and in the country, And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. I love the way that this story, the story which is packed with so much stuff that we'll hopefully try to get through and to treat uh, before the end of uh, before the end of the day, starts with a sense that perhaps most of us, if not all of us, can relate with on some level. A feeling of helplessness. If you back up all the way to the first five verses, you see ultimately. Essentially, a man who feels helpless. A picture of a person who is helpless. 
In other words, this is a person who is in incredible pain. All the words that Mark is using to describe him it gives us a visual of a person who's in incredible pain and turmoil. He's described as unclean. Now, this is not the usual way that the gospel writers describe someone as unclean, meaning ceremoniously unclean to the Hebrew people, although he probably certainly would have qualified for that too. Mark says he has an unclean spirit, meaning he's got demons. He uses words like he's uncontrollable, he's crying. He even says that he's cutting himself, he's, he's harming himself. This is a person who's in incredible pain and torment. Not only that, but he's in so much pain that it, does, it seems like the world around him doesn't know quite what to do with this guy's pain. It's just a little too much, a little too extra. And the only place that society has for him is to keep him among the tombs. It's as if He's hurting too much for the rest of the town to know quite what to do with his turmoil. Sometimes it feels like society often feels pretty awkward around our weaknesses, right? There's not really a safe place for us to be weak. Even on a funny level, when you go and get a job interview and you're asked by a potential recruiter what your weaknesses are, what your flaws are, there's almost this universal tendency inside you to say something that puts you in a good light. Like, uh, I work too hard? I don't know. Perfection? I don't know. That's my flaw. There's no room in society for weakness. So when you get a, when you get a person like a demon-possessed man that is incredibly weak, incredibly hurting. Sometimes society, not even, know what to, not even knowing how to deal with that level of pain, pushes them to the outskirts. And I think this is good for us to see and to remember. Not that it's a shock, but it's worth remembering. There, there sometimes comes a point in all of our lives where it's clear to us that the world is powerless to save us. There comes a point in people's lives where we, we, got, we gotta come to grips with this sense that the world cannot do what I need it to do to make me whole. It can, make me take, it can maybe take me this far, but there comes a place where it can only take me so far. We see this so vividly in the, the demonized person. And at the end of verse four, it says, no one had the strength to subdue him. This is a hurting person who needs to be healed. And the townspeople and society, they're not even talking about healing. They're just looking for ways to subdue the problem. Have you ever felt that way? It's just a problem that people are trying to manage. Maybe you have a problem that you're just trying to manage. Have you ever felt what Mark gives us a vivid picture of in this man of the Gerasenes. If I could couch it in one word, it would just be despair. A sense of hopelessness. Now, this could, this could be something you've felt in the past. 
It could be something that you feel is coming in the future, a sense of uncertainty that's welling up in you and it feels like anxiety. Or maybe you feel a sense of despair right now in a wide variety of ways, just a sense of hopelessness, a knot in your stomach that won't go away as you realize you're not in control of a situation, you don't know how to uh, get across a hurdle in life or you're afraid of what might happen in the future. Maybe you're facing a problem that's so overwhelming, it's, you're, you're starting to feel it in your body. Your neck is tense, your shoulders are tight, you got that knot in your stomach. Maybe you feel despair. And if you do, I think this story is good news for you because it's showing you that the Spirit of God can relate to you. It's not shocked or surprised by what you go through. In fact, thousands of years ago, we see somebody who also faced despair. And really, maybe the only difference between this demoniac and us is that our pain isn't always as obvious to everybody around us as this guy's. You're not, you don't have physical chains. You're not in the tombs, literally speaking. In fact, maybe it's just making it worse for you. Maybe you have a sense of hopelessness and despair. Maybe it comes in waves and nobody around you knows that. In fact, maybe they think that you have it all together, which intensifies and exacerbates the burden that you're bearing. I think whether you're this demoniac or whether you're somebody sitting in this room or uh, in the parking lot or at home watching from your laptop or your screen, if you've ever felt a sense of despair and hopelessness, you might be able to resonate and relate to this situation, but you're also getting good news from the story. The good news is that Jesus Christ can set you free. When I say set you free, I don't mean kind of that transactional thing that some of us grew up with, where we follow Jesus or we pray, pray a sinner's prayer and he kind of check marks a box and then we live our lives however we wanted. I mean Jesus can make you whole. We start to see that turn, that hinge in the story in verse six. Listen to verse six, it says, when the demoniac saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before Jesus. I love this verse. I feel like I could preach six sermons just on this verse alone. The first thing we notice is that Jesus is nearby. Remember, society didn't know what to do with this guy. He's crazy, he's full of demons. He's got issues that nobody can take care of. We don't know how to deal with his problems, therefore he has become a problem for us and they relegated him to the outskirts of society. He is in the graveyard, you guys. He's outside the city. And the first line we see in the hinge of the story is that the demoniac sees Jesus from afar. You know what that tells me about Jesus? He ain't hanging out in the temple. <laughs> He ain't hanging out in a safe place. He's not in the Ivy Leagues. He's not with armchair theologians. He's apparently close enough for the person in the graveyard to spot. If there's anything we could see from this passage, it's that Jesus is always in the vicinity. Can I get an amen? Jesus is always walking among the tombs. 
my friends. What are your tombs? Jesus is always nearby to the tombs. He's walking not in the polished areas of society, not in the temple, so to speak. He's with the, whole, the, 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 the poor and the hurting. He's with the marginalized. He's with the ostracized. He's with the isolated. He's with the lonely. Jesus is always in the vicinity. I think another thing we can get just from that verse alone is Jesus isn't surprised by your despair. I don't, I'd like to think that Jesus was not just going on a random, arbitrary stroll through the graveyards. But just like the woman with the issue of blood, just like Jairus, just like so many people, he just happened to be walking in a cross-section along these people who needed an appointment with Jesus, so we see Jesus taking a stroll in the vicinity of the graveyard. Jesus isn't, dis he's not surprised by the demon, the demoniac. And neither is he dis uh, surprised by what you're going through. It's not like Jesus has been healing millions of people for centuries, but you've got these problems and he's like, oh my goodness, I've never seen that one before. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get some help. Let me, let me ask the Holy Spirit for some uh, advice on this because I've never seen what you're struggling with before in my life. This is crazy. What we see right here is crazy. And Jesus casually strolls into the vicinity because he knows exactly what to do. Whatever you've got in your baggage, whatever you've got in your drama compartment, whatever you've got in that knot in your stomach, it's gonna feel like a lot for you. It probably feels like a lot for you, but Jesus has got your back and he's not surprised. That's why he's walking your way. You're never too far to be out of Jesus' range. Now look at what happens after that. We see in verse seven, crying out with a loud voice, the, de the demoniac said, what have, you do to, uh, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, I command, I beg of you. By God, please do not torment me. For Jesus, here's the backstory that Mark gives us. Jesus had already been saying to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. <laughs> I love that Jesus didn't even wait for the guy's permission. He saw a need. He was walking through the graveyards in the vicinity. He saw the pain and the hurt, and he cared more about that guy than the guy probably cared for himself. Jesus asked him in verse nine, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, which is another word for thousands. And then he responds, for we are many. Now, what you wanna take from this is that this guy and I hope that this provides an umbrella for your suffering, for your walls, for the obstacles that you're facing. That whatever you're facing right now, what we see right here is something really intense. You might have a wall in your life right now, this guy had a thousand, and it still wasn't too much for Jesus to encounter. What we're seeing described here is demonic oppression. This guy had demons, and he didn't just have one, we don't know how many, but he uses a word that's commonly associated with a thousand. 
So he's got a few. This guy's life is no longer under his control. And in the Bible we see, and this shouldn't be any surprise to us, if we believe in angels and we believe in an actual God who influences people, we see the other side of that coin. Now it's not an equal side of the coin, but we see what we might call fallen angels or the demonic. Fallen angels, demons, the devil. Peter says that uh, the devil is like a roaring lion who prowls around looking for somebody who he can devour. And that's what he's doing. He's looking to thwart God's will in the lives of God's people. And we see that in a very tangible way. He has taken so much control of this person's life that his life is barely his own anymore. And in verse 10, it says, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs, this is where it gets weird. A great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us into those, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered into those pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. There's so much in this passage that we can't possibly get into, but here's what I want you to see. Apparently, the demons didn't want to be tormented, and so they made a counteroffer. They're like, we would rather deal with anything other than just facing the Messiah. I know this is one of those passages in Mark that's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? I have so many questions. Why did he do that? Why animals? Why this? How does that work? And could probably spend 30 minutes talking about all of those different options, but I don't wanna get mired in the details lest we forget the absolute point of this passage is that what we're seeing here, and this is the whole theme of Mark, is that Jesus is unequivocally in power over all spirits. There is no competition is what I'm saying. Can we just pause and take in the scene that we just read together? Demons so powerful that an entire city could not control the one oppressed man that they were occupying, even with chains. That's how much demonic oppression is happening in this one man. And yet even these same demons, when face to face with the son of the living God, are so terrified, they're begging him with a counteroffer. And they do exactly as he commands. What we're seeing here is what we've been seeing through the whole gospel of Mark. Jesus is king, and he's not up for a vote. Jesus is king, and there's no equal battle. This isn't a competition between him and the devil, like a yin or yang, or like a, a equal parties coming together to fight. This is not an equal type of struggle that's going on. Jesus is just king. That's it. And sometimes demons seem to know it more than most humans do. Face to face, at a single word, they bow their knee and they tremble. And the king liberates those who are oppressed with a mere sentence. Come out of him, you unclean spirit. Now I want to say all of this because some of you today feel like you're far off. 
I don't know if you feel that extreme, like maybe some of you are wrestling with oppression. Maybe you really feel oppressed by the devil, attacked. Maybe some of you, I don't know, you wouldn't call it something that extreme, but you definitely feel in despair, hopeless. Maybe some of you feel isolated, lonely, far off. The list is endless. But you might say, metaphorically, to borrow from our friend in the graveyard, you are in the tombs. And you feel like you're in the tombs. And no one is listening to you. What I think we can gather from this passage is that somebody is listening to you. Jesus Christ is listening to you. He's not lost downtown or somewhere up on the hills over there. He's right here in the pain and the mess, listening. And he can save you. And when I say save, I don't just mean make a brief spiritual transaction where you're in the club all of a sudden. I mean he can make you whole. He can take your life in all of its brokenness and loneliness and make something beautiful out of it together with him. This is what we see with the demoniac who the passage goes on to describe as sitting there fully clothed. I'm always curious about where he got those clothes. It's kind of fun. And in his right mind. My favorite phrase in the passage. People who encounter Jesus tend to leave in their right mind. Unfortunately, the passage doesn't stop there. We don't just see that Jesus can set people free. We also see that he's a little inconvenient at times. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid afraid of Jesus. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, uh, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I want you to pause for a moment and just take in the sadness of that text. Jesus just set somebody free. And a whole town, troubled by what he did, afraid of what he did, begged him to leave their city. A town would rather cling to the things that were familiar to them and comfortable with, including the bondage and the oppression that they were still in, than accept liberation and freedom in Christ. Perhaps because it wasn't liberation on their terms. Everybody wants to be free on their terms. Now, what possibly could have been at stake for those townspeople? I'll give you a couple things I think that come immediately to mind. Maybe it was greed. I'm just guessing here. One, and I, I can't explain, I don't know why Jesus decided to send the demons into that herd, except to say that he thought that that herding man was more important than that herd or the money that it represented. That this man made in the image of God and hurting by the hand of the devil was precious to him. 
just like you are precious to him. But for whatever the reason, we can understand that 2,000 pigs 2,000 years ago in a small town like that represented an unbelievable amount of income, unbelievable amount of wealth. To lose a herd that big would have represented economic disaster, not only for that whoever owned them, but perhaps for the whole town. Following Jesus sometimes doesn't make you a lot of money, okay? Sometimes it costs you things. It might cost you finance. It might cost you upward mobility. It might cost you social collateral. It might cost you flexibility. It might cost you resources. It might cost you time. It might cost you your comfort. And perhaps that was too much of a cost for them. The other thing is it literally says they were afraid when they saw Jesus doing what he does best. They were afraid of him. Afraid of what? I, I don't know. Maybe the economic downturn. Maybe they've never seen demons cast out. What we do know for certain is that even though Jesus came bringing good news that they couldn't have gotten anywhere else, they rejected it because it didn't fit what they already had going on. Didn't fit their lifestyle. It was inconvenient. And that scares me a little bit. Because I ain't judging them. I think I ain't judging them because I see too much of this in myself. <laughs> Sometimes I think Santa Barbara can feel the same way. Like we're a spiritual town. We love spiritual things. We love, we have a fascination with the novelty and the spiritual stuff attractions that come through our town but sometimes we're, we're too distracted to leave the tomb worse sometimes I see more of verse 17 in myself than I care to admit let me read verse 17 for you again and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region look I'm not supposed to say this because I'm a pastor or something like that but Practically speaking, I probably do this more times than I care to admit. <laughs> Maybe not with my words. I don't like get up in the morning. I'm like, Jesus, leave me alone for today. It's Monday. I want to do this by myself. But are there times in my life where he calls me to something that I'm uncomfortable with? <laughs> yeah. I'll give you some examples. Maybe these will help you think of your own. I love Jesus' message about love. Preached a few sermons about him. I don't like it when he tells me to direct that love to my enemies. I love the story of Jesus washing people's feet. I just, I don't like it when he tells me to do it. Jesus calls me into a community of believers, even though that community hurts me sometimes. Jesus calls me to serve those who are around me instead of lording my authority over them, which would be far more effective, Jesus. He calls me to slow down on the Sabbath when all I want to do on Saturday is get things done, lose myself in the rat race. He calls me to care more about my character than my wealth. He calls me to pray when I'd rather just start fixing because fixing things comes a little more naturally to me than praying for things. 
He calls me to give up stuff that I think I need in order to take on things that I've already overlooked. So on and so forth. Maybe you can think of some things in your life as well. Jesus doesn't just give out treats like Ronald McDonald, you know what I'm saying? He doesn't come into my life with a happy meal. He calls me and you to a new way of life in him and sometimes that's disruptive, right? Full of joy, yes, but it also involves him moving stuff around, breaking our chains, getting us out of the graveyard and getting rid of the things that we had put our hope in. This is why the gospel of Mark is sometimes so uncomfortable. It's disruptive. It's disrupting the throne of our heart with the new king. And make no mistake, Mark is all about one thing. Jesus is the king. He is the hero. And he's writing his own story and he's calling all of us to be a part of it. And it's a good story, my friends. It's the best story you'll ever be a part of but his story is going to confront your story. And so that's why following Jesus is, yes, so full of joy, but also sometimes full of a little discomfort as he removes things we've been relying on. And I can't help but think of the townspeople who missed out on one of the best things to walk through their doors through their city gates, Jesus, as he disrupted everything that they were used to, everything that they were clinging to in order to set this precious man free. And they would rather keep the status quo. They would rather stay in their oppression, stay in their confusion, overwhelmed by the fear of what they might lose if they accepted Jesus' call on their life. And my question for you this morning, to turn that around onto us today, and I'm asking myself this, is what have you been hanging on to because you're afraid of losing it? What has Jesus been like? You know how he does that? He's just like, hey, what's that? That over there. And you're like, don't look at that, Jesus. I'll give you this. Church on Sunday morning. You're like, hey, that's cool. But what about, bink. You're like, oh, don't talk about that. Do you have that? Is there this like golden calf that you're hiding down here that Jesus is just like poking at it? You might think it's cruel. You're like, I can't live without that thing. But Jesus is coming at you with love. He's like, yes, you can. And not only can you, but you will thrive without that. Let me replace it. The demon-oppressed man was left after an encounter with Jesus in his right mind. And he seemed to think that it was absolutely worth it. Jesus can and does liberate, and he can make you whole. If you're willing to let him inconvenience you from the things he doesn't think you'll be needing. If you're willing, perhaps, to respond like the former demoniac did, with gratitude. Gratitude keeps us open to Jesus. Look at verse 18. As we close, he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Jesus didn't permit him to follow him but, uh, physically, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in Santa Barbara, I mean Decapolis, 
how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I'm going to ask Robert and the team to come up as we respond in worship, as we marvel through our song. And as we do, I want to give you a practice to take into this section of our time together. A little gratitude practice, because ultimately we see this, this demon-possessed guy, he doesn't do anything. Jesus heals him of his own accord. His one response to all of this is gratitude. And I want to give you a way to walk in that as we sing together, because it can be so easy to lose sight of what God is doing in our lives when all we see is the tombs, when all we see is disappointment and failure. And that's why we need to practice gratitude. Not necessarily for God's sake, like he needs a clap from us or something, but for ours. It's been said by neuroscientists that joy happens in our brains as a response to repeated exposure to the state of gratitude, meaning you can change your emotion to joy by stepping into gratitude more often, by stopping, slowing down, and looking at what God is doing in your life. So I want to give you two ways of doing that as we sing. Ask yourself this, what's one win God has given you this week that you might have overlooked or bypassed? Where if you were to stop and pause right now and look back, you'd be like, wow, God actually did something incredible right there and I, I almost missed it. Or here's another way to ask the same question. What seemed like a loss to you this week that if you were to pause right now and to, to ponder it, you'd actually be able to notice God was using and working in. What's a win you might have bypassed? What's a loss that God is actually using? As you're pondering that, let's bring that to the throne of God and turn our eyes to Jesus Christ, who's not only in the vicinity, by the tombs, in your despair, but he loves you enough to do something about it. He's offering his hand. As we respond in worship, remember this one thing. Jesus ain't always convenient, but he's good.